Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, all your word is good, given to help us trust and follow our Lord Jesus, uh, to equip us to live as his disciples in this world. Uh, but gracious Father, we also uh, confess that some of your word's hard to understand, and sometimes in our sinfulness we can abuse what it says. And so we pray for your mercy, that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly, that you would give us understanding of your word, and you would grant us grace to live according to its good teaching, to live lives of love that bring you honour and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, when you heard... Uh, that passage uh, being read, did you just for a moment think, well, that's the kind of passage that gives the Bible a bad name? I mean, it starts with an offensive statement for many that man is the head of the woman, which has been used by some to justify oppression. It goes on to insist on some kind of head covering for women at a time when brave young women in Iran are burning theirs in a quest for freedom. And it talks of the shame of a shaven head when one of our very much-loved members has just shaved off her hair in anticipation of her cancer treatment. Then it has at its heart, verse 10, which seems unintelligible. I mean, what on earth does it mean when it says, because of the angels? And after all that, when we've waded through the text, we get to verse 13 and we're told to decide the matter for ourselves, so why did we bother? All right, the temptation for us is to dismiss this passage as too awkward, too sexist, too obscure and too ancient. Did you feel that just for a moment? But if you acted on that feeling, it would be a great shame and a great loss. For at the heart of this passage, what's driving the discussion of head coverings is an understanding of humanity of men and women and their relationship within a common humanity and an understanding of the purpose of human life, which are both rich and beautiful and, when absorbed into our thinking, profoundly helpful. Now, because there's much in these verses that's foreign to us and because this passage, like every other passage which talks of the relationship between men and women, has been the subject of extensive debate, I'm going to first work through the passage so that we understand what it says. So it will be helpful if you've got your Bibles open. And only when I've done that will we think about how it applies to us. And uh, there will be a question time at the end. So let's start at verse 2. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now Paul's introducing a section here in which he regulates the behaviour of the congregational gathering that runs through to the end of chapter 14 and he starts with praise. The Corinthians had got some things right. And one of the things they got right was the participation of women and men in the gathering, having women and men together praying and prophesying in their gathering. You see, what Paul is plainly doing here for all the bits we find obscure is regulating activity, not forbidding it. 
He wants this activity to go on, but to go on in a way that doesn't undermine other important aspects of their life together and their witness to their community, in a way that's consistent with the rest of Christian revelation. It's the manner, not the fact, of women and men praying and prophesying that he addresses. Now, what's the praying and prophesying that's going on in as far as we can tell? Because, let's face it, we don't have a tape recording or a video of their meeting. Uh, That question is asked because it feeds into discussions of what women and men can do today in the congregational gathering. So what's he talking about? Well, prayer, we think we know it's talking to God, but this is public prayer, making prayers in the gathering to which all can say and are expected to say, Amen. Prophecy is a little bit uh, more disputed, as the record of and our experience of the range of prophecy is very limited. So some, for example, will say it's all intelligible words from God, all words that come from God through the work of the Spirit in someone's life that builds others up. And so that could include general words of exhortation and encouragement. But in Corinth, the sense of prophecy seems, as we'll see in chapter 14, more specific. It is intelligible words from God that chapter 14, verse 26 tell us, and verse 30, come by revelation. Words from God that come by revelation which must then be tested, weighed by those who hear. And so it seemed to be more like the prophecy of an Agabus who in Acts 11 foretold by the Spirit the coming of a famine or in Acts 20 spoke of Paul's arrest and imprisonment. Occasional words coming by revelation. Now what was the problem with the way the Corinthians were praying and prophesying? Well, we see that in verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonours his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since that's one and the same as having a head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. So the problem seems to be that some men were covering their heads when they prayed and prophesied and some women were not covering their head when they prayed or prophesied. Now, what's going on? Why is this an issue? Because I don't see many coverings here tonight, male or female, right? Well, let's think first about the attitude to and use of head coverings in first century Corinth. First century Corinth was a Roman colony and so it's Roman customs that form the background. And we know from statues and friezes that upper-class Roman men would cover their heads when making sacrifices and offering to the gods. So blokes covering their heads was associated with idolatry and high-class status. And so it's a a way of differentiating, of some men differentiating themselves from other worshippers and drawing attention to their own importance as well as creating confusion about who Christ is. Paul characterises this behaviour as dishonouring or shaming their head. Christ. Now what about head coverings and women? In Roman society, girls were married generally in their mid-teens, 14 to 16, And at marriage, they took on the veil of a bride. 
a social indicator rights winter by which the marital status of a woman was made clear to everyone. The traditional costume of a Roman matron, that is, a married, you didn't have to be old to be a matron or work in a hospital, right, uh, that is a, a married woman. Uh, the, the traditional costume of a Roman matron signified her modesty and chastity. It consisted of her distinctive dress, the woolen stola, which was worn over a tunic, the protective bands which dressed her hair, and the woolen pallor or mantle, which was used to veil her head when she went out in public. That's what was expected. Now, this veil or mantle was an extension of a garment draped over her head, like a shawl lifted over the head. It wasn't like a burqa, the face was always seen. But in that society, respectable women did nothing to attract attention to themselves. A veil or hood constituted a warning. It signified that the wearer was a respectable woman. To wear a head covering in public was to say that you had respect for yourself, for others, and for social perception. To remove the veil in public if you were a married woman, and, and most women then were married or widowed, was a rejection of the relationship to and authority of your husband. It was seen as advertising sexual availability or at least autonomy in forming sexual liaisons and a cause of shame to the husband. And it was something reflected in some statues that some powerful women in Rome, trendsetters, were beginning to do. As Rosner writes, abandoning head coverings was a move towards a more licentious, a more sexually provocative way of appearing in public. And Winter relates it to a determination of wealthy, elite Roman women to live lives independent of their husbands. So this was a society where what you wore or didn't wear talked. And clothing can talk powerfully in some societies as we see in Iran. And the message being given, says Paul, when they were praying and prophesying without their head covering was one which shamed their heads, their husbands. And as well as the negative cultural perception of what the Corinthians men and women were doing with their headwear or lack of it, their behaviour was also obscuring the difference, the distinction between men and women in the gathering, ignoring what had been established at creation. So... What's Paul's response? How does he seek to persuade them to change the manner of their praying and prophesying? Well, it starts in verse 3. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, the CSB, uh, for all its virtues, is not so good. It's changed the word order and that loses a little of the emphasis, which is on everyone except God having a head. So in Greek it reads, as I've got up there, of every man the head is Christ, the head of the woman is the man or the wife is the husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now there's a lot to think about in this verse which speaks of three relationships in which one member of the relationship is the head of the other. And it says again, everyone has a head except God. Men, women, Christ, each has a head. And that's the emphasis. Everyone except God has a head. And for Paul, it's important to understand this 
for your actions reflect on your head. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the sense of the word head in its metaphorical use in these relationships. Now, some have suggested it has the sense source, as in the head of the river. And that was popularised, even in the dictionary of Paul in his letters. But it's actually been exhaustively refuted. And you could, if you want to read about that, you could read Grudem or Thistleton, people like that. Uh, where does this metaphor come from? Its origin seems to be in the natural metaphorical extension of head as head of the body against the Old Testament background where the head was the representative of the whole, the head of the tribes, they represented the whole. So it has a sense of preeminence, the top of something, but it also has the sense inseparably of authority over us. Rosner again writes, in this context, the word almost certainly refers to one with authority over the other. Although the authority aspect is not emphasised, rather the emphasis here is on the fact that everyone has a head and the effects of the behaviour of the one who has a head on the honour, the glory of their head. What it means for someone to be the head of someone else actually has to be learned from elsewhere. But a couple of general observations. So Paul presents three relationships which are different in many ways. So the relationship between Christ and God, for example, is very different from the relationship between a wife and her husband, not least because both members of that last relationship are sinners, right, which creates lots of difficulties. Now, uh, the relationships, say, differ in the character of the head and in the way the head relates to those whose head it is. So in what way are these analogous? In what aspect are these three relationships alike so that they can be presented in this symmetrical way? Well, each is a relationship between those who have the same nature and yet it is a relationship characterised by an irreversible order in that relationship between those who have the same nature. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's look at each. Let's take first the relationship of man to Christ. The head of every man is Christ. Now, that doesn't mean Christ is not the head of women as well. For in other contexts, for example, Christ is the head of the church in Ephesians 4, the head from whom we all have to be joined to grow. In other contexts, it's plain he is. And that tells you that in this context, Paul is seeking to emphasise a particular aspect of the relationship between men and Christ. And it's this. Christ is a particular incarnate man. Christ is not just a generic humanity, he is a man. And so he shares with all men male humanity. He's not just truly and fully human, he is human in being truly and fully man. So he shares a common male humanity. But there's clearly an order in his relationship with men, for he is also Lord. He is the preeminent man, and he rules over every man, the head of every man. <coughs> so this is a relationship between those with a common nature, but which is an ordered relationship in which Christ is head. What of a woman to a man, or a wife to her husband? 
And I say wife to a husband because although the creation story that Paul will come to later in this section embraces all men and women, that is the context in which the statement is applied here, the relationship between a husband and their wife. And in Ephesians 5, the other place where it speaks of the man as the head of the woman, it's clearly speaking of the relationship of a wife to her own husband. Well, the husband and wife, man and woman, also share a common nature, don't they? Both are made in the image of God, Genesis 1. The woman in Genesis 2, to which Paul will soon refer, is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. All he is, she is. They have a common nature. But there's also order in this relationship. The head of the woman is the man, and Paul will present his understanding of Genesis 2 that supports this in verses 7 to 9. What of Christ to God? Again, Christ shares the nature of God. He is the eternal son, the word who was in the beginning with God, who is God, who became flesh. Now, Paul has already spoken of Christ as being on the God side of the creator-creature distinction in 1 Corinthians 8. For us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. And in Philippians, Paul could say of Christ that he exists in the form of God. And that's in a context where form is uh, not contrasted with substance, but form indicates possession of the substance. So Christ is by nature God, God incarnate. But Christ could say of the Father, the Father is greater than I. He could say that he is sent by the Father, that he loves the Father and does his will. The relationship between Christ and God his Father is one of equality of nature and order in the relationship between the Father and the Son of those who are equal in nature. So what we have here are three relationships of shared nature in which there is an order in the relationship, order in the context of equality of being. So differentiation and order can exist within that context of equality of being, of intrinsic worth. You don't have to be the same in all respects or to have only roles and positions in a relationship that are interchangeable to be equal in dignity and worth of being. Now, some observations about this. Firstly, there is nothing inherently oppressive in having a head. Men are not enslaved by having Christ as their head, but liberated to live as God's children, to know freedom as they do his will. It's freeing to have Christ as their head. Christ comes to glory through loving God the Father and doing his will. It's by submitting to the Father his head that he is confessed by all as Lord. What makes the relationship of the head either life-enriching or life-oppressing is the behaviour of the head. Christ lays down his life for his people, took the initiative in loving us and giving us life. The Father loves the Son. 
and gives him all things, shows him all things, wills that all should honour the Son, gives him all that is his and glorifies the Son. And we know from Ephesians that the husband being head means him loving his wife as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for his bride, cherishing her, loving her as he loves himself. Order in relationships can be and sadly is abused by sin, but there is nothing inherently oppressive in having a head. And seeing I've just touched briefly on abuse, uh, let me say uh, for a man to use the fact that he is the head of his wife for anything other than loving his wife is sin, okay, right? Uh, this is this order is God's provision. It's one in which men are explicitly called to be like Christ. To use it selfishly, to use it to insist on getting your own way, providing your own comfort, is actually to be devilish. It's to take the good provision of God where you are called to love like Christ and to turn it on its head. To actually make it something that actually brings death, not life. Which brings slavery, not freedom. So, so... You know, if you're a bloke and you're tempted to think, wow, I'm the head of my wife, I can get my own way, that's a sinful thought. Repent now before you do anything worse. Okay, uh, we can come back to that. So, But that's the first. Order in relationships can and sadly be abused by sin, but there is nothing inherently oppressive in having a head. Second observation, order is an inherently good thing. Now think about it in the world generally. It's because of order that words can convey meaning and not just an unintelligible unintelligible jumble. That's true, isn't it? Oh, order in the processes of cells is the foundation of life. You disrupt that orderly sequence of, say, transcription or something like that, you die. Order in society allows societies and individuals in them to live securely and to be differentiated in the work they do and the lives they live. Order is the context, not the enemy of human flourishing, which is something some in our society, embracing the myth of natural goodness, each of us being naturally good but then being corrupted by a repressive society, Denies, and, and you ought to know that. We are a society in many ways hostile to order, especially order that gets in the way of ex- us expressing ourselves. But order is good. There is, for example, a world of difference between growing up in a well-ordered, fa- well-ordered family to growing up in one that is chaotic. <laughs> and, and people, that difference then goes on to be expressed throughout their lives. The corruption of order cannot be met by the abolition of order because that's to destroy life, 
destroy the context of our flourishing, the corruption of order has to be met with the renewal of order from the same place all renewal comes, repentance and faith in Christ. Third observation, the order described here is irreversible. Men cannot be the head of Christ. Christ cannot be the head of God. To attempt either of those reversals of order would be a rebellion that would destroy life and the very fabric of our faith. And that implies that for Paul, and Paul is here speaking God's word, the order between women and men, the order he sees as established in their creating and expressed then as now in marriage is also irreversible. So order, not oppressive in itself, a good provision of God, irreversible, something to be welcomed. And in fact, and I know you can overextend metaphors, but when you think about the image, you realise that to be headless is rarely an enviable state. And it would stop you thinking about the image too. Okay, we should want our heads to be honoured. So Paul starts by asking the Corinthians to recognise that life and salvation give rise to relationships between those who share a common nature but in which there is an order in the relationship, an order to be exercised in love where one is head over the other for the other's good and this goes back to the very being of God. Now, Paul then applies this to the Corinthian behaviour to help them recognise the problem in what they are doing. Now, again, these verses, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonours his head. So he starts with men. By praying or prophesying with the head covered, they are dishonouring their head. They're using their activity not to proclaim Christ's greatness but to signal their own importance and high status And they are likening, at least in the minds of others, the Lord Jesus Christ, their head whom they're called to serve, to an idol. And that's to sow confusion for the sake of their own proclamation of their high status and to dishonour him. And so they ought to stop doing that. And then he turns to the behaviour of the women. By participating in a public role with their physical heads uncovered, they are dishonouring their metaphorical, their relational head, their husband. They're shaming him by publicly not acknowledging their relationship to him, putting aside the social indicator that they were married and at the same time advertising in the assembly their sexual freedom. And in shaming their head, They were by their determination to express their independence and drawing their attention to themselves, also shaming their husband's head, the Lord Jesus. Now Paul uses a graphic image to bring home the reality of what they're doing to help them recognise its inappropriateness and offence. And he does that in verse 6. Uh, the end of verse 5, it's one and the same thing as having her head shaved. Not having a head covering is one and the same thing as not as having her head shaved. And again, Paul's not talking about getting ready for chemotherapy. In that society, for a woman to peer in public with a shaved head was to suffer extreme public humiliation and there's evidence that it was associated with being marked as a sexually immoral or a prostitute. 
So he goes on and says, if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Paul's argument summarised by Bruce Winter in this way. If she did this, remove the veil or the mantle while participating in a leading way in an open meeting, then she publicly dishonoured her head and ought, verse 6, to bear the public stigma. And Paul so then argues the converse, that if it's shameful for a wife to be shorn or shaven, then the only alternative was to wear the marriage veil. He's seeking to persuade them, and in the honour-shame culture that first-century Roman Corinth was, Paul's argument's actually very powerful. And he supports his insistence on the recognition and maintenance of the difference between men and women and an order in that difference, a difference and order to be expressed in their participation in the congregational gathering by turning to creation. You see, while the expression of order and difference may be socially conditioned, the existence of difference and order is grounded in creation. And so it applies to all people is a transcultural reality. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Now notice the key idea here is glory, and Paul speaks of the glory of God and the glory of man. Now, glory is what expresses the weight, the impressiveness of someone or something, what reveals, reflects, manifests the one whose glory it is and leads others to be caught up in admiration of that one. It's God who should be admired in a Christian gathering. It's his glory that should be seen. God as he has revealed himself in Christ. Just as, as we heard in 1031, it's his glory that should be pursued in all the Christian life. Now, Paul's arguing for an arrangement that will lead to an exclusive focus on God's glory, not the man's or the woman's who's participating, arguing for that exclusive focus by maintaining gender distinctions and respect for what God has willed and established at creation and in the creation order. And he says, man is the image and glory of God. Now that's drawing on the creation of humanity in God's image in Genesis 1, yes. But Paul is particularly reflecting on Genesis 2 in this section, where man's created first of the dust and then entrusted with the stewardship of the garden to till and keep it. Those actions show God as the ruler and owner of creation and they manifest his might, giving life to dead dust. Man in Genesis 2 reveals the glory of God, his impressiveness. And in that account, Genesis 2, woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul takes Genesis 1 for granted. He's not denying woman is the image of God, but he's actually focusing on the differentiation in their creating described in Genesis 2. So you could say man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the image of God and the glory of man. He's referring to the creation of woman in Genesis 2 as verses 8 and 9 make clear. 
for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. So he's thinking about, if you remember Genesis 2, the bit with the animals and then the creation of the woman from the rib of Adam. That creation of woman distinguishes the man from all non-human creation, reveals in her creating, in her coming from Adam, Adam's uniqueness in all that has been created. There is nothing in all the rest of that created order that is fit to be a helper for him. And that creating was deliberate to meet his need. And so the woman in Genesis 2 displays the man's specialness, his significance, his glory to the creation in being the only one who is a helper fit for him. Now, there's nothing demeaning in this. In fact, in Genesis 2, it's in being flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, that the woman is also image of God shares that with the man. And Paul's point to those women who are seeking to participate without their veils is that there's an order in this creating which is irreversible, both established and revealed by God. Those things in the account he teaches are significant for the ordering of the relationship between men and women, husband and wives. It's why the husband should be reckoned as head and why she should continue to put on her head covering when she leads in prayer or prophecy in the gathering. So the focus is not on her and not on her husband, but on God, the creator. In honouring her husband by respecting the relationship with him, she's also honouring his head, Christ. (coughs) For the man's being dishonoured reflects on his head. And, of course, honouring Christ in turns, honours, gives glory to Christ's head, to God. And then he says, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, that's uh, a difficult verse to translate, which probably doesn't bother most of you. Uh, No, I don't know. You might be learning Greek, which would be a good thing. But it is an appeal to the woman to do something. He's actually addressing, in a sense, the woman doing something. And in context, it's an appeal for her to put on her veil or mantle when she leads in prayer or prophecy. But here it's described as a symbol of authority. And there's an intriguing further reason given because of the angels. And Rosner draws our attention to the fact that those in authority are often recognised by the symbols of authority that are placed on their heads, crowns and diadems, and that the Roman world was full of statues and other images of men and women who had authority on their heads. That is, a sign of authority, signs of royal power. Now, what is the mantle a symbol of authority to do? Well, it's a symbol of the woman's authority or right to participate in prayer and prophecy as she seeks God's glory by respecting the creation order and her relationship with her husband and as she respects her own dignity. That is, as she seeks not her own good but the good of many, as Paul has called all believers to at the end of chapter 10. 
Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many. And Paul adds that she should do this because of the angels, considered as witnesses to creation, those entrusted with being guardians of the created order. Now that's a reminder to us that we're not the only ones created by the creator. And what we do on earth in our gatherings are witnessed by others. Now that might be a foreign thought to you, but Paul actually alludes to the same thing in Ephesians 3. So that God's multifaceted wisdom may, may, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. God's creation order extends beyond us and its honouring or otherwise is of interest to all God's creatures. And again, let that thought just sit with you. We, we are so focused on ourselves, but creation is big. And what God does affects in his church affects and is of interest to all creation. Well, having spoken of differentiation and order, Paul now goes on to stress the reciprocity and interdependence of men and women, again related to biology, to the God-given role of women in Genesis 1 and 2, providing the help in her complementary humanity necessary for mankind to fill the earth. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman and all things come from God. Notice he says, in the Lord. So he's talking to believers in Jesus as believers, those who already enjoy the gift of the age to come in the spirit. And he says to them, there is still this created independent interdependence and reciprocity. We need each other, and we need each other as men and women. This is from God. It's the way he's ordained for the life he gives to continue, and it's actually the way he's ordained for the life of the church to continue. One can't do without the other. We need each other. But you can't have expressed interdependence and reciprocity with sameness. So Paul appeals now to them to think it through. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Judge for yourselves. Now, Paul is not saying... Ignore all I've said up to here and just decide by reference to yourselves how you feel about it. Come to a decision amongst yourselves. It's just all too hard. No, no, what he's actually saying is, in the light of all that I have said about God's work in creation and the order of work, oh yes, and all that I've said before that about respect for others, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, 11, 1, about seeking the good of others, about seeking God's glory in all things, in the light of that, is it proper, is it appropriate for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And he thinks the answer is pretty obvious, but he's seeking to engage their thinking on it. And just in case they haven't got the point yet, he adds another argument 
one secondary to his reflection on Genesis 2, one secondary to his teaching from the Bible, he asks them to think about nature. Now, nature has a range of senses that can overlap and reinforce each other. So nature, as it's used in Romans 1, can mean the order intended by the creator, the grain of the created order. And Paul's already spoken of that from Genesis 2. But here it's more an appeal probably to the second sense, the very ordering of things, what's accepted by common consent and usage, (coughs) which of course can be believed to reflect the first sense, what God has created and intends by his creating. Now in Roman Corinth, Paul's comments would be reckoned definitely true by the second sense. Doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? You see, amongst the Romans, long hair in a man was seen as effeminate. They looked down on it and generally all accepted that. And that also means that their understanding of nature supported what Paul says in verse 2 that if a woman has long hair, differentiating her from the man, that's her glory. Long hair is her glory. That is, it expresses her impressiveness as a woman, as image of God distinct from, different to the man. It actually exhibits her place as image of God. And then he adds, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, Paul is not now contradicting himself, suggesting that long hair can function as a replacement for a veil. No. Rather, he's saying that nature, in giving women long hair, is indicating the need for the appropriateness of women having a head covering. Paul is seeking a clear, recognisable differentiation between men and women, not confusion or ambiguity, and he's seeking it not just in hairstyles, but in what men and women wear on their head. And then he says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, we need to hear that. You see, the Corinthians may have been tempted to think that they were the exceptions because of their remarkable giftedness and experience of the Spirit. And we see that in other places in the letter. They do think they're exceptions. But Paul says, no, this is the requirement in all the churches. This is the practice of the universal church in all the churches taught by creation. A clear distinction between men and women is maintained. And in all gatherings, the focus is on glorifying God, which means honouring our heads by not abrogating relationship, not drawing attention to our own glory. So Paul's not conceding unwillingly the participation of men and women, but he's regulating it so that no one seeks their own advantage or promotes their own cause in worship. But honour is given to the Creator God through his Son. So women's ministry is not a concession. It's an inevitable expression of... Women's ministry, ministry by women, is not a concession. It's an inevitable expression of creation and salvation, of interdependence and reciprocity and mutuality. (coughs) But it's to be done in a way that also recognises the creation, differentiation and order in relationship. And you think, oh, that's good. 
But then you think, actually, there's, there's a lot that's different in our circumstances today. How, how can we apply this? I mean, we don't judge a woman's respectability by her head covering. On the whole, women don't wear head coverings. And there are a lot more single people in our congregations, including a lot more single women, than there were in first century congregations. So how do we apply what Paul teaches here? What does this call for from us if we are to be faithful? I've got no idea what I've just done. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, it's just disappeared and that it doesn't actually matter. Uh, right? Well, here's the first thing. Uh, we should ensure that amongst us that creation order is respectfully expressed. That is, there has to be acceptance that there is an order in the relationships of men and women, of husbands and wives, and this is to be respected, acknowledged, in the way men and women, single as well as married, participate in the congregational gathering, just as Scripture would encourage it to be respected in marriage and in the ordering of congregational life. Now, you might say that's right, we, we should, we should, you know, respect that order. But, but how do we do that? And that's where there's a lot of room for discussion and uh, some of the books, well, the books I've referred to engage in that discussion. But that order should probably be expressed in some form of public symbolism. It's hard to know how visible it could be, you know, if you're married, you wear your wedding ring, uh, hold it up to the microphone when there's ambiguity, right? Uh, but, but something like that. So we should respect and acknowledge the order of creation. Secondly, I think, though, interdependence should be joyfully embraced. We need to joyfully recognise that we need each other. And so as a congregation, we have to promote and encourage everyone's service men and women. Okay, women and men, that's just clear. We need everybody's service. We should recognise that and facilitate each other's ministry. Thirdly, distinctions have to be maintained clearly. Now, we can't have confusion between male and female. In our participation, all of us need to accept responsibility in dress and manner to maintain clear distinctions between men and women because you can't have order and interdependence without clear distinctions. And I know that's going against the flow of our culture, but it is for our good. And we ought to be conscious that the church, our gatherings, have a wider audience. And you ought to think about that. When you, when you come to church, God is expressing his wisdom to creation by saving us together. Now, there's more, uh, as I've suggested. Uh, what Paul teaches here is an application of the message he's been promoting from the beginning of, cha of chapter 8. And so we apply that by remembering that there's an attitude to be practised in all we do. In all our behaviour, we shouldn't be seeking our own advantage, but rather seeking to give no offence so that people can hear the gospel. And that's countercultural. For the way we dress and what we do and say 
we are taught in our culture is all about you. It's all about expressing yourself. That's right, isn't it? In this area, the most important thing we're told is that, you know, we dress and talk, that you be true to yourself and not let anyone else's expectation influence you. Well, Scripture says no. We need to be true to Christ who didn't seek his own advantage and humbled himself, putting our interests ahead of his own to save us. Believers live conscious. Our behaviour is not merely a matter of personal preference or personal rights, but seeking the good, the salvation of others always. And that includes being conscious that what you wear matters. We might not have, you know, rigid rules for dress, but what you wear always communicates. And so you want to make sure it communicates the right thing, that glory should be given to God and not to you. What you wear communicates. And you have to remember your participation in congregational life is not about you, it's about God. And so we need to practice the self-control that we've read about at the end of chapter 9, the self-control in all things that allows us to seek the well-being of the community. And self-control is about saying no to yourself and yes to God. And that brings us to the last point, because that looking to the good of others by exercising self-control allows us to pursue God's glory in our gathering. Because remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, that is the goal of everything we do. Everything we do. So who gets the glory from what you do in congregational life? And when you're asking this, remember it is God who through his word who teaches us how to glorify him, how to acknowledge his greatness as our creator. And actually that's what he's been doing in this passage. He's saying he is glorified where we participate in congregational life with respect for the order he has created, embracing the mutual interdependence which is from him, from God, and maintaining the distinction between men and women that is the foundation of both. But that's what's got to govern all we do, the glory of our great and saving God, that he gets the honour and the praise. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we live in a world that consciously wants to reject order that seems to constrain us and our choices. Uh, We live in a world that seeks to isolate us from each other in an aggressive individualism. And gracious Father, we live in a world which is confused. We pray in your mercy we would hear your word and we would trust you, our saving God, and that in our own lives and in our lives together we would respect the order that you've created in the relationship of men and women. We would express that order in love, as you have loved us in Christ. 
Uh, we pray that we would not live individualistic lives, but one where we can serve one another in love and put others' interests ahead of our own. And our gracious Father, we pray that we would rejoice in the clarity of the distinctions that you have made in your creating of men and women. And we pray this so that you would be honoured and glorified in our life together. In Jesus' name, amen.